Section 8 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The Medici, Volume 1, by G. F. Young. Chapter 4. Cosimo, Pater Patriae, Part 3. Cosimo, 1440 to 1452. In 1440, shortly after the above concourse had dispersed, and Florence had returned to her normal conditions, the palace in the Via Larga, which Cosimo had begun to build in 1430, was sufficiently completed for occupation, and he moved into it. The members of the family, who were thus the first to take up their abode in this palace, to which so much of the after-history of the Medici attaches, were Cosimo and his wife, Contessina and their two sons, Piero and Giovanni, then respectively twenty-four and nineteen years old. A few years later, both the latter were to marry and bring their wives also to live in the family palace, which, before Cosimo's death, echoed to the childish voices of yet a third generation. Cosimo's brother, Lorenzo, died just as this change of residence of the elder branch took place. In the same year, the long and desultory war with Milan was brought to a conclusion. The Milanese army, under Piccinino, after threatening Florence, retired into the Casentino, where, being followed by the Florentine army, it was defeated at the Battle of Anghiari, by which success Florence gained the fertile district of the Casentino, and Venice, her ally, gained Pescheria and Bergamo. In the following year, 1441, there occurred an incident out of which has originated an accusation against Cosimo of the gravest kind, to the effect that he instigated the murder of Baldaccio d'Anghiari, commander of the Florentine infantry. The crime was an atrocious one, but there is not a particle of evidence that Cosimo had anything to do with it. During the war with Milan in 1440, a Florentine named Orlandini was in command of the troops which had been stationed to hold the important pass of Maradi on the Faenza road, a strong position covering Florence on the north, and between which and Florence there were no other troops. The Milanese army, under Piccinino, having failed in their attack on the pass of San Benedetto, then attempted to force that of Maradi, where they should have been still more easily repulsed, but on the approach of the enemy, Orlandini had ignominiously fled, ordering his troops to do the same, thereby leaving the road to Florence open to the enemy, who advanced and occupied the heights of Fiesole, placing Florence for a short time in grave danger. And Baldaccio d'Anghiari, being a brave soldier, had boldly denounced Orlandini's cowardice, which had had such serious results. In 1441, Orlandini became gonfalonier, and while holding that office, sent for Baldaccio, under the garb of friendship, to come and discuss some military affairs at the Palazzo della Signoria. The latter, accordingly, went to the palace, was received by the gonfalonier with every sign of friendship, and conducted by him to his own room, where, on a sudden, Hired assassins, placed in concealment by Orlandini, 
rushed upon Baldaccio and killed him, throwing his body into the cortile below. His head was cut off, and his mangled remains exposed to the public in the Piazza della Signoria, where it was proclaimed that he had been put to death by the Signoria as a traitor to the Republic. The accusation against Cosimo is that Baldaccio, on his way to the palace, happened to meet him, and asked his advice about going, and that Cosimo treacherously advised him to go, it being declared that Cosimo desired Baldaccio's death, because he feared the growing influence of Neri Capone, whose close friend Baldaccio was. The motive, alleged, is exceedingly lame, while the whole story of Baldaccio's having met Cosimo at all, or received any advice from him, is apparently due solely to political animosity. It is only mentioned by one historian of the time, Cavalcanti, whose hatred of Cosimo is well known. And as the story is not mentioned by any other writer, and comes from a source so unreliable in this particular case, it is now rejected by all historians as unworthy of credence. Gino Capone, in similarly rejecting it, says that Cavalcanti always writes in hatred of Cosimo while wishing to appear not to do so. Some writers have urged that even if Cosimo did not instigate the crime, he must be held no less responsible, since he took no action against those guilty of it. But this ignores the fact that the latter were not private individuals, but the government of the country, that, at the date when this occurred, 1441, Cosimo had by no means yet gained the degree of power he afterwards attained, and that any action by him against the Signoria under the circumstances would have been at any rate highly unconstitutional and would practically have been to head a rebellion against the constituted authority of the state. Lastly, the crime is so opposed to the whole tenor of his life that we are justified in rejecting absolutely the idea that he had any part in it, especially as the charge is entirely unsupported by any evidence. Nor, except for the desire to find material for a damning charge against Cosimo, does the crime appear to differ from many others common at that time. The facts of the case are amply sufficient to account for Orlandini's deed, while he probably had reason to know that the members of the Signoria were not men likely to refuse to support his action before the people, backed as that action was by the evidence of traitorous conduct which he asserted that he possessed against Baldaccio d'Anghiari. In the same year, 1441, Cosimo arranged the purchase by Florence from the Pope of the town of Borgo San Sepolcro for a sum of 25,000 florins, while we are told Cosimo increased the obligation of the state to him in the matter in that he himself advanced the purchase money. In 1443, Pope Eugenius IV was at last able to return to Rome. Rome was at this time a ruined city, devastated by the long conflicts between the Orsini, the Colonna and other great barons, and destitute of all culture or civilising influences and the contrast was all the more severe to the Pope, since Florence, where he had been living for eight years, was in advance of all other cities in Europe. The Medici Library In 1444, Cosimo founded the celebrated Medici Library, the first public library to exist in Europe, and from the example of which the Vatican Library at Rome was thirty years afterwards formed. 
this library housed at first in their own palace was steadily added to by the medici family in succeeding generations and by them in fifteen twenty four the building in which it is now located in the cloisters of san lorenzo was constructed designed by michelangelo it contains about ten thousand manuscript books of greek and latin classical authors many of them of the rarest value among these it possesses the original copy of the pandects of justinian a d five three three the discovery of which in the twelfth century caused so great an influence on the civilization of europe and on which our study of the roman law almost entirely hinges also the best manuscript of cicero's letters two manuscripts of tacitus one of them being the sole existing copy containing the first five books of the annals a very ancient copy of the tragedies of sophocles a most important manuscript of aeschylus a greek treatise on surgery the commentaries of julius caesar a virgil of the fourth century a syriac gospel of a d five five six the bible copied from six ninety to seven sixteen by colafrid abbot of wearmouth and called the codex amiatinus a pliny of the tenth century and numerous literary treasures connected with the time of dante and petrarch and the florence of the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries the whole representing a vast sum of money spent by the medici on this splendid contribution towards the advancement of learning it is the parent of all the great libraries of europe and as such deserves to be duly honoured in connection with this library it is curious to note how little printing when six years after this it appeared was at first welcomed those who owned these rare and costly manuscripts of the past and their beautiful calligraphy looked with no favour on crude and ugly reproductions thereof by a mechanical process it is recorded by gregorovius that Frederigo montefeltro duke of urbino a prince who was at this time beginning to follow cosimo's example in regard to the encouragement of learning and art would not have a printed book in his library in fourteen forty six a general war broke out in italy as usual filippo visconti duke of milan was its leading spirit and he had as his allies the pope and the king of naples against this powerful coalition were ranged venice florence genoa and bologna the latter were entirely successful especially when cosimo at length managed to separate naples from the coalition and this brought about peace in the same year brunelleschi died grand funeral obsequies were held in the duomo where his body lay surrounded by candles beneath the mighty vault that he had constructed and was visited by the whole city he was buried in the duomo his monument being placed opposite that of arnolfo di cambio he who began and he who finished thus lying opposite each other in the building which is their joint creation in fourteen forty seven filippo visconti duke of milan the last of the visconti family and the perpetual enemy of florence died whereupon two years of revolutions in milan followed cosimo now executed his greatest stroke of foreign policy the perpetual state of war with milan wasted the revenues of florence and prevented her development cosimo therefore determined to entirely change florence's traditional foreign policy 
and instead of Venice for ally and Milan for enemy, to reverse the position. He was opposed by many in his own state, who had less political foresight, but he carried his point. Francesco Sforza, the successful soldier, who ever since his visit to Florence in 1435 had maintained a strong friendship with Cosimo, had since married Bianca Visconti, the late duke's only child. To him Cosimo now gave both political assistance and liberal supplies of money, and as the result of this aid, Sforza, early as 1450, gained possession of Milan and became its duke and Cosimo's fast friend. Venice, of course, was greatly incensed, but Florence had no reason to fear Venice, which was neither so valuable as an ally nor so formidable as a foe as Milan. It proved a most successful stroke of policy, bringing to Florence peace instead of constant wars, and making Cosimo acknowledged as the most powerful force in the politics of Italy. Contemporary Historical Events, 1440-1452 to As regards France and England at this time, the Hundred Years' War was still proceeding, devastating all northern France, but with a general result that the English were steadily losing their hold of that country. In 1440, Frederick III became emperor. He was destined to hold the imperial title without dignity or influence for over fifty years, 1440 to 1493. In 1447, Pope Eugenius IV died. As his successor, there was elected a man of far greater energy and ability, the eager little scholar, Tommaso Parantuccelli, who was a great friend of Cosimo, and had acted as librarian to the Medici Library when it was being formed, and he, on becoming Pope, having taken part in all the life of art and learning at work in Florence, was burning to inaugurate a similar state of things in Rome. He took the name of Nicholas V, and, we are told, he determined to make Rome at this time so desolate and ruined the metropolis of the world. He took active measures at once, both in the domain of art and in that of learning. In 1450, there was invented at Mayence the art of printing, fraught with greater consequences to mankind than many other events of this time, which then seemed of far greater importance than this at first obscure invention. In 1452, the Emperor Frederick III visited Italy, and on his way to Rome passed through Florence, where he stayed with Cosimo in the Medici Palace. In the same year, war again broke out in Italy, caused by Alfonso, king of Naples, who, on the death of Filippo Visconti, had taken his place as the disturbing factor in Italy, and who now invaded Florence's territory. In the war that followed, Naples and Venice were ranged against Florence and her new ally, Milan. This was the balance of power which Cosimo had, with much labour, striven to create. It was shown to be thoroughly satisfactory, Venice and Naples being able to effect nothing against Florence and Milan, and after a time, discovering this, they became ready to agree to the peace which through the Pope was proposed and concluded. Pope Nicholas V took no part in the war, urging all states to abandon their feuds and combine against the Turks to prevent the fall of Constantinople, then closely besieged, but none heeded him. 
Cosimo, 1453. For nearly twenty years, Cosimo's administration of foreign policy had given him unremitting labour. But these efforts of many years had been crowned with success. Notwithstanding many difficulties, he had by degrees brought all foreign countries to realise that he was the motive power in the Florentine state. And he was also, through attaining unvarying success, gradually convinced his own countrymen that no one else could manage their affairs so well, so that they had no desire to see them in other hands. It had required much patient tact to convert his countrymen from their traditional policy of having Venice for friend and Milan for foe, to bring them to see that the contrary policy was the sounder one, to counteract the ill-favour against him, which, in consequence of his action, Venice endeavoured to stir up in his own city, and to do all this without losing his position in the process. But the successful issue of the war of 1452 convinced all that his view was correct, and left none any longer anxious to dispute his administration of their affairs. And so long as he continued in the same course, and at the same time shunned, as he was wont, all ostentation of power, he might do almost what he would. But Cosimo's political labours did not end even when he had achieved this result. He had to exercise a never-ceasing attention in order so to conduct the foreign policy of Florence amidst the intrigues of the time as to maintain a balance of power among the various Italian states, small as well as large, and thus secure peace in Italy and preserve Florence from the wasting effect of petty wars. The manifold anxieties of such a position were enough to break down any man, and even upon Cosimo they told severely. It was no wonder that he often sought a few hours' retreat from such anxieties in the quiet monastery of San Marco, nor that by the time he was sixty-four his health had already begun to give way. Contemporary Historical Events, 1453 In 1453 the Hundred Years' War between France and England came to an end. Between the years 1431 and 1453 the English had gradually lost all that they had conquered in France, and when at length in the latter year the aged Tarbot was killed at the siege of Castillon, this war, which had lasted a hundred and sixteen years, ended. It left the condition of France utterly wretched. From the Loire to the Somme all lay desert, given up to the wolves, and traversed only by the robber and the freelance. But a greater event than the conclusion of this long war, and one whose effects still continue, occurred in the year 1453. This was the fall of Constantinople, bringing to an end the Eastern Empire of Rome, on the 29th of May, 1453. It was an event which struck all Europe with horror, for Constantinople was not merely the storehouse of the ancient learning and culture of the Roman Empire, it was also the one great capital city in Europe which had always, from its very birth, been Christian. A city whose foundation had signalised the adoption by the civilised world of that religion, and which had come to be called in the East the Christian city. That such a city should be captured by the Turk, and be henceforth the headquarters of the Mohammedan religion, and of Turkish misrule and tyranny over the Christian populations of the eastern countries, 
was hateful in the eyes of Europe. And it happened solely because the Western nations were too much occupied with mutual dissensions to combine to prevent it, as three successive emperors of the East, in 1361, in 1401, and in 1439, had come in person to implore them to do. The emperor, John Paleologus, had died in 1448, and had been succeeded by his son, the brave young Constantine Paleologus, the last of the long line of emperors who, during 1130 years, sat on the throne of Constantine the Great. It was a strange coincidence that the last emperor of Constantinople should have borne the same name as the first. Of Constantine Paleologus we are told, he was in no way inferior to any who ever sat upon that throne. In this final contest he, at any rate, did his part nobly, thereby throwing into deeper contrast the behaviour of the Western nations. Deserted by Europe, with the armies of the Turks all round him, with none but himself to depend upon, with far too small a garrison to defend thirteen miles of walls, and a vast crowd of women and children and other non-combatants, the defenceless population of a great city, all looked to him to defend them from the atrocities of the terrible Turks, with every sort of difficulty to be coped with inside the city, whose inhabitants saw themselves abandoned by Christendom. Constantine, solely by his own ability and strength of character, conducted for a year and a half a splendid defence, and in such sort that, instead of the ignoble scenes witnessed when Rome fell before Alaric, the manner of the final fall of Constantinople has been felt to be one of the most glorious episodes in all her long history. The immediate consequences of the fall of Constantinople were four. Intoxicated by their victory, the Turks, wild to press on and subdue the whole of Europe, where Mohammed II now planned to set up at Rome the capital of a worldwide empire, advanced into Hungary, but there the brave John Hunyades barred their way, like another Charles Martel, and they got no further. To the Pope, Nicholas V, who alone had laboured to prevent it, the fall of Constantinople was the cause of the deepest grief. He tried to rouse France, England, Germany, and Venice to retake Constantinople and turn the Turks out of Europe. But what with the incapacity of the Emperor Frederick III and the general disunion between the different countries, he could effect nothing. After two years he died, in 1455, it was said of grief and horror at the capture of the Christian city by the infidel, and at his failure to rouse the Western nations to retake it. To Venice the fall of her rival was her doom. She began to decay from that hour, losing territory after territory to the Turks, and her commerce at the same time. It was a just retribution, for it was the crime of her treacherous attack upon and capture of Constantinople in 1204, committed under the name of a crusade, and solely to satisfy her insatiable greed of wealth, which so weakened the Eastern Empire that the decline in power wrought thereby ended. After 250 years of constant defeat in the final fall of Constantinople, and brought the Turks into Europe. And it was fitting that on Venice should fall the chief punishment. Her wealth rapidly departed, 
Others, Portugal especially, gained the commerce which she lost, and by the end of the century the decay of the once mighty republic was fully established. To Florence, the fall of Constantinople was again. It scattered westwards all that accumulation of the ancient learning which Constantinople had so long preserved, most of which naturally gravitated to the city where many of the leading men of Constantinople had been hospitably entertained only fourteen years before, and where they knew they would find friends. And this helped forward still further that preeminence in learning and art which was Florence's greatest glory. As to what happened to Constantinople itself, that is best told in a single sentence by a traveller of our own day, who writes, I have never, in all my travels, grieved so much as at the sight of the once beautiful city, defiled, squalid, and misgoverned. Cosimo, 1453-1463 We have now to look at Cosimo from a financial point of view at his general as well as his charitable expenditure, and the financial arrangements made between the two branches of the family. Cosimo, besides his work in the world of politics, had to administer a great banking business. In this sphere he has, by all writers, been given the reputation of a financier of the first rank. Notwithstanding his immense expenditure, which included private subsidies towards state expenses, the entertainment of distinguished visitors to Florence, large sums given to advance the cause of learning and art, and the equivalent of a million sterling given to charitable objects, he more than doubled the fortune inherited from his father, and left his son and successor, Piero, the wealthiest man at that time in Europe. Another feature of his financial work is the way in which he made his operations as a banker assist those connected with his position as head of the state. He frequently made his immense banking transactions a weapon with which to force other countries to the course required for the welfare of Florence. Thus, by his financial assistance, the Venetian Republic were enabled to withstand the united attacks of the French and of Filippo Visconti, Duke of Milan, but on being deprived by Cosimo of this support, were unable to do so. Again, in the War of 1452, in which Venice and Naples were allied against Florence, one of the chief means by which Cosimo obtained his success was by calling in such immense debts from those countries that they were deprived of resources for continuing the war. Again, during the War of the Roses, Edward the Fourth obtained such enormous sums from Cosimo's agent in England that he might almost be considered as the means of maintaining that king upon the English throne. As regards charities, the Libro di Ragione shows that Cosimo's private expenditure on churches, monasteries, and charitable institutions exceeded 400,000 gold florins, and this at a time when the whole income of the Florentine state did not reach more than half that sum. About the year 1453, as Cosimo was growing old, and his brother Lorenzo was already dead, a computation was made of the family income, and a resolution come to between the two branches, as to the manner in which the profits of their banking business should be divided between them. The share of these profits, which thus fell to each branch of the family, was equal to about half a million sterling, an enormous fortune in those times. 
Cosimo, built for his family, besides the Medici Palace in the city itself, various villas outside Florence. The chief of these were Carreggi, about two miles to the northwest of the city, Caffaggiolo, in the valley of Mugello, and the Villa Medici, on the slope of Fiesol, built by him for his son Giovanni. Carreggi was Cosimo's favourite residence, and there he was fond of gathering round him the learned society which he loved. End of section 8